You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. John DeYard, and welcome to LifeSpa.com, where we prove ancient medical wisdom with modern science. And this month's podcast, I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to interview two authors of a really amazing book. Uh, the book is called The Essential Thyroid Cookbook, and how food can be our best medicine when it comes to helping and healing and repairing and supporting thyroid function. And this is going to be a very lively discussion about, um, about how we can help support our thyroid, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, some of the things in there in this book I agree with wholeheartedly. Some of the things I don't 100% agree with. So I think we're going to have somewhat of a, a lively, I wouldn't even call it a debate or a discussion, but I think at the end of the day, I think we're going to find that we really agree on the basic premise of how to help and support your thyroid. So what I want you all to take away from this discussion today is real hardcore, real strategies to protect your thyroid and how to move ahead if you have a thyroid condition, how you can use food as your best medicine, and even some supplements to support that. So this is going to be great. I'm super excited. Let me introduce my guests. Uh, my first guest is Jill Grunwald. Um, Jill, raise your hand so we know we have three of us here today. So you have to make sure that we all know who we are. Um, she is a, a integrative nutrition and hormone coach. Um, uh, integrative nutrition is a, a really amazing uh, um, holistic uh, health. What do they call it? Holistic health counselor, coach. I forget. I should. Know. I'm on the board. I teach at that school. It's a great program, but it's a health coach, right? Yes. And uh, so she's a thyroid health and Hashimoto specialist, and wrote the educational component of the Essential Thyroid Cookbook. For nearly a decade, she has successfully guided her clients and students with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. To health and vitality. This is a really big issue. Everyone knows somebody with a thyroid condition. And so many folks, what is it, like 90-something percent of folks who are, you wrote in your book, that are actually diagnosed with a thyroid condition may actually have Hashimoto's and don't know it? Is that, is that, was that the statistic? That's what a lot of the experts are saying, yes. First thing yeah. 90%, then it went up to 93, and last I heard it was 97. I mean, people have different opinions, but it's, it's up there. Way up there. And then our, our um, the other co-author of the book, Lisa Markley, she's a, she had a master's degree. She's a registered dietitian, culinary tr- nutrition expert, and the co-author of the Essential Thyroid Cookbook, over 100 nourishing re- recipes for thriving with hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's. As a seasoned culinary educator and recipe developer, Lisa translates nutrition science to the plate using health-supportive ingredients prepared with peak flavor, seasonality, I love seasonality, nutrition, nutrient density in mind, and uh, she shares her kitchen wisdom and food as medicine recipes to teach others how to harness the healing power of whole foods for vibrant health. I think that um, there's nothing better than having um, the ability, Lisa, to to um, help take food and make it into medicine and, you know, and... Uh, and bring the science of that to the plate and make it taste good. Because, uh, and then also, I love how your book is laid out. She, they, they, what they've laid out the book is that they're, the recipes, they're indicated if they're cooked in 30 minutes or less, right? Yes. 
mm-hmm. and they are also a section recipes for vegans. There's a paleo section, and then there's an autoimmune section. And I'd like to um, get into that a little bit. But maybe let's just start out by why don't you guys tell me? You know, I know you have some thyroid issues. Tell me why you wrote the book. What what got you into this? Yeah, I could start. Um, so. I actually started having thyroid problems back in 2008. I had some swelling in my throat and a difficulty swallowing and basically found out that I had thyroiditis and elevated antibodies. But the doctors at the time said that my TSH was normal and I didn't need to do anything about it. So I just kind of went on without really heeding those red flags until about a year after I had my son. So this was 2011. I woke up with some pretty debilitating fatigue, tingling and numbness in my hands and my feet, and just overall just whole body malaise and weakness, and felt like I just couldn't get off the couch. And it was really a struggle because I had this young little baby that I was trying to take care of as well. Um, I knew that Jill had been working with women successfully on coaching them back to health um, for, for women that had thyroid imbalances. So I had reached out to her it wasn't until about a year later that I didn't, that I reached out to her specifically about um, my Hashimoto's and uh, she was doing a telesummit at the time. So I participated in her educational program. And after the third class, I said, I had been teaching cooking classes for Whole Foods Market. I've done, I did that for about six and a half years. And was, that's where my passion is, is being in the kitchen and working with these foods and these ingredients to, to optimize health. And I, as I went through Jill's class and I'm learning about all these nutrients that specifically support thyroid function, I'm thinking of all these recipes that I could create to really illustrate that. And so I, after this telesummit, I said, hey, you know, we really should translate the package of, you know, nutrition information that you've put together to the plate in the form of recipes and put together a cookbook. So that's kind of how this all started. But we, we go way back. We've been friends for a little over 10 years. And um, so, yeah, we've kind of been on this path for a little while. I, I think a really great place to start here is exactly where you started. You went to the doctor. They did a TSH as a, TSH as a screening test, which is the thyroid-stimulating hormone. So the thyroid-stimulating hormone is a hormone produced in your pituitary that sends a purchase order to your thyroid to make some thyroid hormone. Um, and if that, if you are, have um, a really high TSH, then your, your pituitary keeps sending that message, that's sending that request, I need more hormone. And the thyroid's like, all right, all right, I'll get there. But it doesn't really kick in, so the TSH keeps going higher and higher and higher. It was a study, it was a test developed back in, I think it was in the 80s or was it the 70s that it was the Mayo Clinic that developed the test and because it was the Mayo Clinic everybody thought it was the new gold standard and now we know that it's not the gold standard right so Jill tell me a little bit about that what what do you know about TSH and how sort of inaccurate it is well I think like you said it's a pituitary hormone and it's not even a thyroid hormone does it give us information about the thyroid yes however just because someone's TSH is normal doesn't quote unquote normal because there's different opinions of what normal is, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that person's making enough T3 and T4, which is the, you know, T3 is the active form of thyroid hormone that helps the body benefit from all the things that the thyroid should be doing. So, um, 
there's you know wildly differing opinions about what the upper threshold of TSH should be, but it sh- my opinion is that it should always be taken in the context of free T3, free T4, and thyroid antibodies. So, to me, the thyroid antibodies, if they're you know determining whether or not someone has the antibodies, is almost more important than. The hormones, I think both should be taken in context of one another. But if you just keep chasing those hormone labs without looking at the possible autoimmune component, then you could end up barking up the wrong tree. Okay, let's back up for a second. So some of the things that we knew, and I've written a couple articles about TSH, and we know that there are a lot of false positives and false negatives. So if someone comes in with a thyroid problem, they tell them they're, they do it. It's just a TSH test. It comes within that sort of somewhat interesting normal range and they say there's nothing wrong with you and the doctor doesn't then suggest to take a T3 or T4 to measure the actual hormone and another level of testing beyond that is to actually do the antibody testing which is this after your body has got an autoimmune reaction which means it's actually attacking the thyroid with antibodies so they would test those antibodies to to, to test those antibodies to see if your body is actually fighting its own thyroid so there's sort of like three levels of test. The first thing that many doctors do is just a TSH, and then if you see some problem, maybe then they'll do a T3 and a T4, and then if there's still problems, then they'll do, you know, the antibodies for the test. But all of it seems to, seems to be, and then a lot of people get a normal TSH and they still feel really bad, mm-hmm. and you know, and um, or they go on, they have a high, they have a high TSH and they go on thyroid hormone and they still feel really bad. So. So they find a lot of people, a lot of doctors are treating only based on a TSH, which seems to be a remarkable thing to me that a doctor could actually give, recommend thyroid hormone simply based on a TSH test, which they do, right? Isn't that accurate? Frequently. It's frequently. Yes. So we're giving hormones out. And, and, you know, the definition of a hormone is one of the definitions of a hormone is that when I give you a hormone, it's going to suppress the production of your own. So if you take a TSH test and you're taking hormone and you don't need it, which could easily be the case based on the results of that test, you could be literally suppressing their own hormone when they really don't need it. And, of course, the first rule is to do no harm, and that clearly would be doing harm, which is why what you're saying in the book and you start out saying in the book is so critical. Get Ask for, get a full battery of tests to evaluate your thyroid that in, in, in addition to, right, evaluating the individual, right, how they feel, right? It makes sense. You can't just do it on, all based on lab tests, right? Yes. I don't remember who it was who said this, but one prominent functional medicine doctor said a few years ago, symptoms always trump labs. You can't manage what you don't measure. You always want to have that full panel performed, like, you know, full blood test. But symptoms trump labs. So I, I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, I agree. So that's the first thing I think we can all take away is just don't rely on the simple tests, which I see patients every day and I get blood tests every day. And I almost more, almost always, very rarely do I see a test with a TSH and a T3 and a T4. I always just see a TSH. I'm going like, wow. You know, that just is so so limited, you know, for, for the patient. So I think that's a, an important piece of the puzzle. You mentioned in your book that, um, the th- and this is where I want to get some clarification, that the, that the there are iodine receptors only in the thyroid. 
you know, I've read in many places that there are iodine receptors in every every um, tissue of your body. Some of them are, are specific for iodine, and some of them are specific for iodide. So talk to me about that. What do you know about that? Well, the first thing I would say is I would defer to you because you're the doctor. I mean, we spent a great deal of time doing the research for the educational component of the book, but there's some things that we could be wrong about, and I I don't have a problem saying that. I mean, I I can't remember if that specific piece of information in the book had a footnote. Um, I would have to go back and look to see. Yeah, I didn't see a footnote when I read it, which is why I wanted to see where that came from. Because he didn't see a footnote, so I could certain I could probably find a source for that. I have read it in, in multiple places, but. I mean, I'm happy to hear what you have to say about iodine receptors. We do know like the breast tissue during nursing has mm-hmm. more iodine in it than the thyroid gland does in one study. And there, are, uh, I think Dr. Brownstein does a lot of research, talks about how every, every, every cell has iodine receptors and there's different ones for iodide and iodide, which is why an iodine supplement should be, um, you know, a combination of iodide and iodine because you want to actually feed all the receptors for iodine. Um, but let's talk about iodine. I think that's the great, great place to dig in. So many people uh, just think, oh, I, you know, if I just need some iodine, it'll fix my thyroid. Um, clearly, I can tell you from experience that doesn't happen. Um, but iodine is a very important piece of the puzzle. So talk to me about um, iodine and how you look at that in this whole scheme of, you know, hypothyroidism uh, and even into the autoimmunity. Yeah, it's such a complex topic, and what you see in the educational component of the book, so for people who don't have the book, Lisa and I did all this research around thyroid and immune-supporting nutrition and researched each one of those, and it's all outlined in the book, and iodine got the biggest, it got the most pages, and that's actually a shortened version of what I'm I have in my blog. So yeah. there's a part very long blog post outlining the iodine controversy, um, I, in my work with clients, it has run the gamut from if I take even the smallest amount of iodine, I feel terrible. And other people have said, I tried this, I tried that, and you know, I'm getting minimally better. But as soon as I started supplementing with small amounts of iodine, I started feeling remarkably better. So I, I had done some of the reading about, and I don't know if this I hate to quote statistics when I can't specifically say who it came from, but I remember clearly reading that if a woman is, and I actually think this was Dr. Christiane Northrup, stated that if a woman is deficient in iodine, her chances of developing breast cancer increase significantly. I don't, I don't want to rattle off the number, but they, they increase significantly. So we know that it's an important nutrient for the body. I think that there's risk involved in taking too much, you know, and it's been referred to as a Goldilocks mineral where you don't want too much, you don't want too little, but then that can cause anxiety and stress for people because they say, well, how do I know? You know, do I go get it every three months? Like, I don't want too much. I don't want too little. Um, so I did my best to outline the controversy without saying this is what you should do. 
because I don't have a last word on iodine, and even some of the people I respect the most in the functional and holistic medical community, they, many of them have really strong opinions, but a lot of them also are um, unclear on how to direct people around iodine. And Lisa and I very much take a food first approach. So it's, it, I feel, and I'd love to know your opinion on this, but I feel like it, it may be possible for some people to get their iodine needs through food. I mean, vegetables are rich in iodine, but it's something that Westerners don't often eat. Yeah. So, yeah. And clean seafood. Um, when I say clean, I mean, you know, mercury, mercury free seafood. But, um, I find that there's such a small amount of foods that contain iodine that oftentimes people um, aren't getting their needs met. And if someone is on, uh, say, an autoimmune paleo diet or they're on an elimination diet and they're not eating eggs, you know, egg yolks are a good source of iodine or some people just don't like eggs. So I find that it's easy to be deficient from a dietary perspective because there's such a small amount of foods that contain iodine. So then the question becomes... Should someone supplement? And I'm not a doctor or a licensed dietitian like Lisa is, so I can't really dose anybody on anything. I provide the information and I say, this is something you're going to want to talk to your doctor about. Here's the research I've done. We all need iodine, and that's a given, but the risk is, well, I find this to be true of a lot of supplements where people say, oh, I read that such and such supplement can help me in this or that way, and they take way too much. It's like, you know, too yeah. much of a thing. I think we can blame the Japanese for that because, you know, they – and I think you did a great job in the book. I mean, the Japanese, they take, what, on average 12.5 milligrams of iodine per day. But you got to remember, they also eat – the largest amount of soy products, which actually suppress the iodine, you know, you know, functionality. So it sort of dials down the amount of iodine they're actually taking. And of course, the Japanese have the lowest rates of breast cancer in the world. So you make that deduction that iodine is their protective factor. But is it really? There are good studies to show that iodine actually blocks the, and the uptake of toxic estrogens into the breast tissue. So there are studies behind that that make good sense, which is why iodine is a protective for the breast cancer. I've found some recent studies on how iodine, I'm a big fan of the lymphatic system, and how the lymphatic system actually is moved by iodine. Iodine, of course, was the, was the antibiotic of the 1800s, so it's a powerful antiseptic. But in the last... 30 years, the amount of iodine in people's blood has decreased by about 50% because the iodine used to be in the meat industry, the dairy industry used to be used to clean all the equipment, uh, was a dough conditioner in bread, and now they've replaced that with bromine as a dough conditioner, which is a toxic halogen. And um, I want to tell one story about this as a patient of mine real quick. She came to me, she was a woman who had a, was on a, a medically supervised weight loss diet from eight years old on. She's now 50. She comes to see me and I've been treating her for thyroid issues and weight loss for many, many years. Finally got our digestion in place. She was able to actually eat bread again without bloating up, got everything working. Her thyroid was normal. She came walking in my office with a thyroid test, numbers off the charts again, out of control. And she's like, I don't know what to do. I looked at it and I was like, I don't know what to do either. So I called a friend of mine, maybe someone you came across in your research, a PhD thyroid researcher, Ryan Drum. Uh, he literally grows seaweed in British Columbia. He's an amazing mm -hmm. guy. 
So I, I call him up, and my patient is sitting right here, and I get Ryan on the speakerphone. I say, Ryan, I have a patient here. I told him the story. I said, I don't know where to start. He goes, has she bought a new car recently or a new furniture recently, right? And I was like, it was so weird because we were, she lives in Brazil and Boulder like half the time in both places. She said, I just bought a new apartment in Brazil. We were just chatting, and she says, there's outcasting so much that I had to keep the windows open. It was terrible, and I just bought a new car. She had just talked about, so that was like weird. We had just had this discussion in passing, and we were like going, and I was like, wow, yeah. And he goes, the thyroid is the most, as you guys know, and you write about in your book, is the most vulnerable gland for toxicity, for heavy metal toxicity, for halogens like fluorides and chlorides and bromides, all of which are toxic halogens, very similar in shape and size to iodine, and they can uptake into the receptors when you have, what, 72% of the world's population deficient in iodine, according to the World Health Organization. So it's like super common from fluoride to space and fluoride in our water and chlorine in our jacuzzis in our, in our water that we have a whole, and a major deficiency in iodine in the soil and in, it's not being used anymore. So we have issues with, with a, a lack of iodine. My take is that I like to know if someone's deficient in iodine. So we do a provo provocation test and then a 24-hour urine sample, and we find out if they're really low or not, or they're uptaking or they're eliminating all their iodine. So I like to find out for sure, not just a random sample of urine, but actually a provocation so I can, I can look into that. And then I know if they're deficient. And then the studies show that to protect your breasts, and I have an article called Protect Your Breasts, and it was one to three milligrams a day was enough to protect you from toxic estrogens. So, and the issue that I have with sea vegetables, and I love your take on this, is that the oceans are funky, you know? I mean, a lot of people are afraid of sea vegetables now. So yeah. how, do you, how do we deal with that, with, with sea vegetables? I mean, that's a great question. And, and we can also, sorry, Lisa, did you want to, I don't want to talk the conversation here. Uh, I mean, we can ask ourselves the same question about seafood also. And, you know, anything that comes out of the sea, not just the vegetables, but also the fish. And I think it's a very tricky question. Um, there was a really good article put out maybe three or four years ago uh, that stated that um, when it comes to seafood or um, fish specifically, I know we're talking about seaweed, but when it comes to fish specifically, the health benefits tend to outweigh the mercury risks, if you're not eating fish every day, if you're eating it, you know, occasionally, then the health benefits tend to outweigh the risks of uh, mercury toxicity. And there's also some things that we can do to bind heavy metals in the system and, you know, yeah. keep, keep those glands of detoxification working. But when it comes to sea vegetables, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't have the perfect answer. I still eat them. A couple of things I wrote about that, that study. I was really fascinated. Even though there was accumulation of mercury in their brains, they still had better cognitive function. And, be and so the results, the actual the fatty acid benefits seemed to out outperform the toxicity of the mercury, which I thought was a crazy study. But here's some good news. Um, in the last 10 years, the Atlantic Ocean has about 20% mercury in the fish from the Northern Atlantic Ocean than the Pacific Ocean. So if, you know... Lisa, I don't know if there's a way to know if you can source the, um, the sea vegetables from the Atlantic versus, because I think, and that's all because the winds go that way. That's because of what, you know, the United States has done in recent years in terms of cleaning up 
getting our act together and cleaning up our coal and our mercury pollution. The Pacific Ocean, unfortunately, doesn't have that same track record. And, you know, because Asia isn't really, it's a little bit further behind us. So that's one way is to source your fish and your iodine from Atlantic uh, sources, which is, you know, a little tricky, but uh, something to think about. Yeah, I was going to add that Maine Coast Sea Vegetables is a good company, a good reputable company to buy sea vegetables from. And they're usually found in in several natural food stores and as well as online. But I think um, both of you make a good point, you know, kind of varying it up is is the best way to go. And then, you know, the approach we took in our cookbook was that we're going to be pairing these foods, whether it's, you know, we're going to be telling somebody how to cook salmon or halibut or whatever, there's usually it's paired with something like a pesto or a salsa or something that's very antioxidant, nutrient dense, um, loaded with phytochemicals that can help support the body's own detoxification processes as well. So it's like you have to look at the whole context of the meal that you're consuming. Oh, I love that. That's really, really great. Now, I, I you know, we know that that uh, bromine is really uh, a problem. And we also know there's studies to show that when you actually take iodine or more sea vegetables, that actually helps to kind of kick out the bromine. And in one study, uh, Brownstein did a study, and he found that it increased the, the excretion of uh, bromine by like 135% or some crazy number. I forget the exact number. So iodine is a natural detoxifier for these toxic chemicals and these halogens. Um, but there was something you guys said, I thought in your book, that there were some foods or recipes you had for get, helping to get rid of bromine. Was there something like that in your book as well for, for helping? To our companion guide. Okay. Section in so the companion guys is so let me back up just for a second and say this conversation around toxins I'm extremely passionate about and I want everybody to know about and I really wrangled when I was writing the outline for the educational component because I could have just gone on and on and on and written a whole book <laughs> like right. I write health book and then Lisa could have created her recipes and so I really had to decide what am I willing to say in the educational component of a cookbook or what's a, what's not not so much what I'm willing to say but what's appropriate so a lot of the things that I wanted to expand on that I didn't feel like were appropriate got shuttled into our companion guide which is a, okay. a download. so there's a section a chapter in there about bromines um, and how to how to excrete with the understanding that I'm not saying you can be a hundred percent, have a hundred percent of the bromines in your system removed because frankly, we're, especially if someone's sleeping on a conventional mattress, we're continuing to, you know, take them in. The idea is that they come in, they go out, they come in, they go out. Yeah, no, I, I agree, but that's great to know. And I, and I think, and it's a free download, you guys. So it's something that you can all get that gives you even more information, um, than what's in the actual book. So I think that's really, really great. And I, and, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, uh, which is great. I think that, that, um, one of the things that's nice also to know, like the supplement that we use, the iodine supplement that I use is from the salt brines in Utah, which hasn't seen the ocean in a few million years. Mm-hmm. So you avoid that issue. So if you're looking to get a little more iodine in your diet, um, then, um, then you can do that with supplementation. And I do think because people don't eat a lot of sea vegetables in this culture, that a minimal amount, like I generally have, you know, our, our iodine supplement is about 12 milligrams and I give them once one capsule of that 
every seven to 14 days, depending on who they are. So sort of like a big shrimp dinner once every two weeks or something like that is the kind, you know, the way I think we traditionally did it. We had these big surges of fat eating the brains of a woolly mammoth in a paleo setting versus, you know, we're eating a whole bunch of shrimp in a catch and having a huge dose of these nutrients. And then, then there's, you know, sort of feast and famine concepts. And, uh, and I think that's a, a, a reasonable way to do it as long as you're not overdosing. Um, I experimented years ago with the high doses of iodine and never really felt like I was making the progress that uh, Dr. Abramson, different experts would talk about. Um, so I, uh, but I do find that there's a lot of uh, iodine deficiency. And I also find that, I, you know, in Ayurvedic medicine, the relationship to the thyroid is a relationship to the lymphatic system. And there's cervical lymphs that go across your neck and the thyroid is stuck in the middle here in your neck because it's supposed to communicate with the higher and lower centers, right? And if somehow the thyroid is congested because of poor lymphatic drainage, then the thyroid can't really communicate. And if it's got toxicity that should have been flushed out through the lymph, of course we know, right, the mercury, the heavy metals, they're all detoxifiable. The body has ways to detoxify those. So those, when the body loses its ability to detoxify those, we begin to accumulate, dispense, disperse, store these toxins in different parts of our body, right, which can include your thyroid or your brain tissue if it's mercury or, or different things like that. So, you know, my first theory years ago was, Let's get that lymphatic system moving and understand that piece of the puzzle. And it turns out that iodine is, in fact, a lymphatic mover. Um, so that's a great way to help keep your lymphatic system moving. So it is medicine for the thyroid from an, in, a, in a direct as well as an indirect way. So that's something to keep in mind, um, which I think was uh, really, really uh, interesting. So now before we get into the into the, the recipes and how you laid out your recipes, I want to mm -hmm. talk about that. Let's talk about some of the, the real causes of it. And I think that fundamentally, I think you talk about the leaky gut syndrome is really the fundamental cause. And then one of your strategies to deal with leaky gut syndrome is to avoid wheat like the plague um, mm -hmm. and dairy sort of like the second plague. And of course, I wrote a book called Eat Wheat, How to Safely Reintroduce Wheat and Dairy Back mm -hmm. into Your Diet. So... Um, we have to we have to we have to deal with that that controversy here a little bit, um, and uh, and uh, I, I also want to mention to you guys that what people forget when they when they read these when we read and you, you quoted a lot of paleo experts in your book and I get it eating a paleo diet is a clean diet grains are hard to digest they are. But we've been eating grains for not 10,000 years. Chris Kressler says we only be eating for 10,000 years, which isn't enough. It sort of is enough to create genetic changes, but it, we've been eating it. They found gluten in the teeth of ancient humans three and a half million years ago. Africa was covered with grasslands, covered with wheat and barley, both glutinous grains. So to say we don't have the genetics to do it is like I'm scratching my head and go, does anybody? And Chris says, you know, within five minutes, you could read all the research and find out gluten is toxic for your thyroid. No, gluten is not toxic for your thyroid. What gluten is is a hard to digest protein that most of us stink at digesting. And they people do have gluten intolerances, sensitivities because the digestive system has broken down. And now we can't eat anything hard to digest. 
And the science shows that the gluten goes undigested from your stomach into your small intestine. And because it wasn't broken down properly because our digestion got broken down, and we got to talk about why that happened next, right? And fix that. I think the real solution to this thyroid problem is not to put them on a restrictive diet for the rest of their life. You guys have figured out a way to fix the thyroid, and I think it's beautiful. And taking wheat and dairy out of diet is one absolutely essential initial strategy, but it's not the finished product. We have to get the people to be able to digest well again, because if you just can't take wheat, if you take gluten out of the diet and they feel better and their thyroid repairs, what happens to the mercury from the coal mine plumes that are on every organic vegetable? How are we digesting and detoxifying that? We're just shoveling snow in a snowstorm. You follow what I'm saying? We haven't fixed the body's ability to detoxify itself efficiently because your digestive pathways are directly linked to your detoxifying pathways. So they're the same, right? Um, and I didn't actually know you guys were writing about this when I read, when I said, let's do the thyroid cookbook. I only, I read the cookbook this week and I go, oh my God, this is a book. We have to have this discussion. So it wasn't like I planned to have this, this discussion with you by any means. It just happened like, I go, I have to talk to you guys about this because I, I just thought a thyroid cook would be a great discussion. What a great idea. And I absolutely think it's a great book. And I think if you have a thyroid condition, you should get the book and read the book and follow the recipes for sure. But again, we haven't solved the problem. So here's what happens. If you don't digest well, the protein goes undigested into the small intestine. It's too big now to get into your bloodstream. So where does it go? It goes into the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. They found gluten in the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. There's enzymes specifically engineered to digest gluten in the early stages of your lymphatic system, suggesting that we're wired for that. But we're not wired for processed, undigestible wheat that's got cooked vegetable oils to make it stay on the shelf for a month eating three times a day for the, for 50 years of our life. We weren't wired for that. So the undigested protein goes into the lymph and it congests your lymph and the lymph system is congested, which then causes a host of the gluten intolerance issues. The lymph gets congested so the thyroid can't drain. We know that it causes brain fag. I had a big debate with David Perlmutter about this. And the bottom line is, is that there's brain lymphatics that drain three pounds of chemicals out of your brain every year while you sleep at night. And if those lymphs are congested, because your gut lymphs are congested, well, then you're going to have real issues with your lymphatic flow, iodine being a really nice lymphatic flow agent. Um, so the, 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 I understand taking the gluten out of the diet to heal and repair the body, but, but I really think it needed to be mentioned that, that wheat has been shown in study after study after study, whole wheat, things like camut. Camut, for example, you talked about inflammation. They took camut, which has uh, twice the amount of gluten as some other modern strains of wheat. Twice as much gluten, but it also had twice the reduction of inflammation, and it lowered diabetes, and it lowered cholesterol, suggesting that how could the grain with the highest gluten have the twice as low, twice as less inflammation? And study after study shows that wheat, whole wheat, not refined processed wheat, Reduces Alzheimer's by 53% and 54% in one study. Reduces um, uh, blood sugar in study after study after study. You know, two big major Harvard studies came out in the last month or two suggesting that people, both over 100,000 people, both over 25 years, showed that people ate wheat had a significantly more um, or more less heart disease and diabetes than people who were gluten-free. 
In other studies, they show that here's the point that I'm trying to make here. That people who are eating wheat had four times less mercury in their blood than people who were gluten-free. People who were eating wheat had significantly more good bugs in their gut and less bad bugs. In another study, significantly more killer T cells, a measure of immunity, than people who are gluten-free. So here's the risk, right? Wheat, I mean, we have been eating it for millions of years. This is not true to say we've only been eating it for 10,000 years. We started cultivating it for 10,000 years. And when they did that, they actually selected for the bigger wheat berries, right? They wanted to because wheat berries are like needle size, really, really small. And when you smash them on the ground, you want them to easier to find and pick them up, right? So they selected for bigger ones, and that was more sugar and less gluten. So the original hybridization of wheat had less gluten than the wheat that they've been eating for millions of years had more sugar. I will completely go to go on board with you guys if you if we say that sugar is the cause of this problem because it's always been a problem, and I, I'm sure that you agree with that. But wheat, I don't know. Processing the heck out of it, replacing cholesterol with polyunsaturated fatty acids that, we, that are bleached and boiled and deodorized that we can't digest, that congest your liver and gallbladder, making gallbladder surgeries the number one abdominal surgery in America today, and the gallbladder being the kingpin of digestive strength. And when you can't digest stuff, then all kinds of stuff's going to go in your intestinal tract, rip your gut to stress, clog your lymph, and cause thyroid issues. And then when you get hyperreactivity, and, 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 and the studies now show that autoimmunity is due to congestion of the brain and central nervous system lymphatics. Inflammation, infection, autoimmunity, anxiety and depression and cognitive decline, all linked to congested lymphatics. So my take was, I get it. You have an autoimmune condition. Don't eat wheat and dairy. Don't eat. You're going to have to go down the road of eating less difficult foods to digest. But the reason why there was so much more mercury in the people who are gluten-free was because when you don't eat harder to digest foods with anti-nutrients on them, those are immune stimulation for us. And if you can't digest well and you take everything out and you eat a sterile diet that's easy to digest, you lose the stimulation for your immune system and that's what we begin to see happening. So in the big picture, 20, 30 years from now, all these $16 billion a year gluten-free people are not realizing that taking gluten out of their diet is putting them at risk in harm's way for the real toxicity of which there's 4 billion pounds in the American environment every single year. So it's not enough to just take wheat and dairy out of the diet. We have to take the next step, which is, which is, I, which is why I think first people should read your book, the three, the, the, your thyroid book and fix your thyroid. And then you should read, eat, eat, read, eat, reader, my newsletters. And learn how to strengthen your digestion because I think that without that and decongest your lymphatic system, we're just doing what we've been doing forever. It's just fix the symptoms and leave the cause behind. We took cholesterol out of our diet. They said it's going to lower heart disease. Heart disease is higher than it's ever been. It didn't solve the problem. The polyunsaturated fatty acids they gave us in replacement actually lowered cholesterol, but they increased heart disease. So... Yeah, we screwed that up royally, and we set the body up for weak digestion, which is now causing a host of problems, including obesity, depression, and autoimmune conditions. So, so I think it's really important to make that point that, that as a medicine, take the hard-to-digest food out of your diet, but don't leave the body vulnerable to eating foods with no irritation, 
phytic acids, they don't, people who eat the most phytic acids in the diet have the highest bone density. To Would say you like that, to comment on yeah. gluten? Yes. So, um, in everything that you just said, there was one word that you said at, at one point, and you said initial, in, or initially, initially removing gluten and dairy from the diet. So, one of the things that I love about you, and I'm not just trying to flatter you, you are one of the doctors that I have followed for the longest because you're willing to stick your neck out and be a mythbuster. I have your book, Eat Wheat. I haven't read it yet, but I know the premise of it. And Lisa and I were also willing to stick our necks out on this cookbook. I wrote this book with trembling fingers because I thought I'm going to be laughed out of my circle of colleagues because it's not a paleo or so like people who have Hashimoto's or any type of autoimmunity have to do paleo or really, you know, AIP in their immune modulatory healing phase and then adopt a paleo diet. I have never been behind um, that wholeheartedly. I mean, I do understand the principles of AIP and paleo. Um, but just to include any grains in these recipes was a risky move for Lisa and me because we do believe that not everyone, I know you're, I know you're talking specifically about gluten and I want to talk about that, but just to include grains in this cookbook was, we totally, no pun intended, went against the grain and I thought, I don't know how well this book's going to be received. We could be totally shooting ourselves in the foot. We also include some legumes. The response from the functional medicine community has been overwhelmingly positive. I think because a lot of people are realizing you can't put people on these super restricted diets long term and expect things to work out. It just it just doesn't work emotionally, mentally. A lot of times people do these super restricted diets and they don't feel any better physically. I I just don't believe in it. And um, when it comes to gluten, um. I do know a lot of the things that you said about how people with Hashimoto's may not need to be gluten-free in perpetuity. Now, if someone has celiac disease like me, you know, I don't know. I think I heard, I, I either saw an interview or I read one of your newsletters where you said, now, if someone has celiac, that's a different story. It However, is. you know that some people, some people with celiac can go to other parts of the country and eat wheat and be fine. So... Many people with Hashimoto's also have celiac. So my opinion is leave the wheat out. For people who have Hashimoto's without the celiac, I actually don't believe that people have to be gluten-free in perpetuity. I, I, I don't believe that, but I wasn't, I made a, I made a conscious choice not to say that in the cookbook. Um, and frankly, maybe Lisa and I will stick our necks out even further and, adopt some of your research into the educational component of our next book. Who knows? But at this point, we felt like it was risky enough, quote unquote, risky enough to include grains, include legumes. Lisa wrote a whole part two of the book, as you probably saw, that talks about proper preparation of these foods so that they are more digestible. So I'm going on record as saying, I actually don't believe that people who have Hashimoto's without celiac need to be gluten-free in perpetuity. 
Well, I couldn't agree more. And I think that I and I think that I just wanted to make it clear when people read the book that they go, oh, this is about being gluten free. And then we joined the gluten free bandwagon. Now we're buying gluten free foods. And it, it, that has nothing to do with what you guys are suggesting. And I love the fact that you see the big picture that, you know, that um, that we really do need to restore you know, we evolved eating weird, poisonous foods, you know, and, and all that created an immune system. And now we're processing and pre-digesting everything, and now we have weakened immune system. Uh, the Amish kids have the highest rates, the lowest rates of asthma in the, in the world, and they measured the dust that they breathe in the farms, and they play barefoot in the farms with their cows as pets. And they had irritants in the respiratory dust that they were breathing that triggered an immune response that gave them the lowest rates of asthma in the world. You study after study beginning to show that that's the case. So I just think before we take something out of our diet forever, let's be careful. We've done, we've, we've done that so many times in the past, and it really didn't end well. So, But when people are inflamed and they have autoimmunity and, they're in, they're, and their thyroid is not functioning Absolutely. Let's make it easy on the body. I mean, Ayurveda uses kitchari in our kitchari cleanses, which is the, it's baby food to heal and repair the gut. I mean, so that's the concept, and that's a medicinal concept, but we don't stay on medicine forever. And that's a weird thing that we, we've changed that rule somehow a long time ago. Now people get on medicines, and they never get off of them. So anyway, I think that's great. I'm glad that we're on the same page there. And, uh, and again, I think that food what you're doing is great. Now, let's... Um, Can I ask you one quick question yeah. about gluten thing? So, and, and it's, it says this in the book, and many experts that Lisa and I follow have been saying this for a number of years, is that for people with Hashimoto's, well, the molecular structure of gluten is very similar to the molecular structure of thyroid tissue. So people who have Hashimoto's and have that hypervigilant immune system, when they, when they take in gluten... Yes, there's a potential digestive component, but the body can mistake that gluten for thyroid tissue and up the ante on thyroid antibodies and cause actually, you know, that uh, it could for some people cause a flare, even a flare. I'm wondering what your opinion is on that biomolecular mimicry. Well, I mean, I, what I've read about that is it's a definitely it's a very strong theory, somewhat of an accepted theory, but it, there's not been a lot of proof that that actually does happen. My theory on why that does happen and, and I think it I think it does happen is because of um, what Ayurveda calls cellular memory which is the when you have blood coming in and waste coming out for cells to function normally they have to have good blood supply in and good waste moving removal out your immune system is carried in your lymphatic system Triglyceride fats are delivered as energy into every cell through to the body via your lymphatic system. And the drainage, garbage can, trash can, dump every cell of your body waste is your lymphatic system. If that system is compromised, your immune system is going to be stuck in traffic. You're not going to deliver the energy that you need to feel energized, which can also mimic hypothyroidism. And it also is not going to be able to move the waste out. So if you have a broken down digestive system, and you're dumping toxins into the lymph and it's gotten overwhelmed, congested, and inflamed, thyroid is one of the first systems to uptake a lot of those toxins, heavy metals, environmental pollutants, all of which will end up in your lymph because that's the bigger kind of collecting ducts are bigger, so that's the trash can. So, yeah, it's congested, so you're going to get hyper-reactivity to many, many things. 
I am not 100% sure that gluten is the same molecular structure of thyroid tissue. I tried to dig into that uh, last night a little bit. I think that's an interesting case. I'd love to see the molecules of both of those. That would be a really good thing for, for you to do is, or me to do or somebody to do is actually get a picture of those two molecules and just see how identical they are. Um, you know, because that would be a, a lot more compelling to me to see that. Um, but I do think that if you get that lymphatic system to move out, you don't get things building up in the thyroid where you end up getting hypersensitivity reactions, histamine reactions that don't need to be there. So I think it again goes back to the largest circulatory system of our body, the trash can, the energy delivery system and the immune system carrying system. That system is not looked at at all. Never discussed in the paleo literature. I've never seen anybody talk about it, except I dig up this really weird research in the journals that nobody will ever probably read. And I try to bring it out in my articles. We have an e-book for the lymphatic system. Um, some of this lymphatic research might take 10, 15, 20 years to reach medical practice, according to what they say about research finally getting into the world so, so people can actually benefit from it. Um, but I would look, to me, that's, the, that's how I look at that. Is it mimicry? Maybe. But whether it's mimicry or not, it's hypersensitivity and histamine reactivity and inflammation due to not getting the trash out as efficiently as it could. And we have hard science to prove that. That's just not me talking. We know that autoimmunity comes when your brain lymphatics, the central computer, gets bogged down with lymphatic congestion. That they only discovered whatever it was four years ago at the University of Virginia. And Ayurveda has been talking about brain lymphatics for couple thousand years. So I'm like, um, we don't know everything yet, obviously. You know, they didn't figure that one out for a few thousand years. And anybody who would talk about brain lymphs or lymphs in the body and the brain and the central nervous system, which I did, was heresy. We were considered quacks up until four years ago. And now this is the cutting edge of science. So, so that's how I look at that. I, I don't discount... The, the, the mimicry, but I definitely would suggest that, that that much gluten should not find its way into into the auto, into the uh, into the thyroid tissue um, because it because we have we should have a better filtration system, which is our digestive system upstream and our lymph, and our intestinal skin downstream. Okay, so um, I think that's I think that's great. Um, what else, before we move on to the, uh, to the recipe side, Jill, did we not talk about that you want to bring up about what people need to know about thyroid before we move on? I okay. Talk about your, um, what did you call it, your, your four-leg approach. Talk about that. The four-leg approach of, of gut healing or the four-leg of, You talk of, about your four-leg approach, which is diet and lifestyle and oh. toxicity and supplementation, I think, was the four-leg approach you talked about at the beginning of the book. And possible infections. You know, many people with autoimmune conditions have an infection, and some sometimes it's a stealth infection. They don't even know they have it. Like, I'm an Epstein-Barr carrier. I've never had mononucleosis, but I carry the Epstein-Barr virus. Um, so, um, I mean, at the end of the day, the thyroid is a very nutrient-dependent gland, and that's why I nerded out we nerded out on all that research around micronutrient support for thyroid and outlined it in the book because 
we wanted people to know that these recipes truly are thyroid and immune supportive from a, from a micronutrient standpoint. And I wrote all those sections on all those different nutrients, not knowing whether anyone would even read it. But I took a lot of satisfaction in knowing that it's there if people want it. They, they can rest, even if they don't read all, you know, everything about B12, for instance. They know that Lisa and I did the homework that what that ended up becoming the foundation of Lisa's recipes. And we created that ranking system where uh, we created our own framework for how and why these recipes would be thyroid and immune supportive. And each recipe had to have a certain number of supportive ingredients to even make the cut into the cookbook. So I guess, I mean, one of the most important things I want people to know is that the thyroid is a very nutrient dependent gland and simultaneously many of those nutrients are also very digestive supportive. So you're kind of catching two butterflies with one net. I'm not going to sit here and say, Oh, you know, eat our recipes and then you'll heal your gut. I think there are other steps that need to be taken obviously, but I'm all about how can we catch the most butterflies with one net? And at least it's the same way. And I want her to speak too, but um, I have to really, I mean, she took all that science and translated it over into these original recipes that we're getting really phenomenal feedback on. So, which, is, which is amazing. And, and I want to hear from Lisa about that, because when you read the book, what you're actually seeing, you know, in the nutrient section is a massive amount of, you know, nutritional needs for the thyroid. And if you were to take them in supplement supplement form, it would be like way, way, way too many pills to do. So what you guys did, which is, I think, quite amazing, is you took that science of knowing well, here are the nutrients that support thyroid function. And then, Lisa, you took all that and then figured out what foods have those nutrients and then created recipes around that? Yeah, yeah. We have a section in the book called The Nutritional Heavy Hitters, and it lists out the those foods that are key um, sources of these nutrients. So the top of the list, as you could probably guess, would be dark green leafy vegetables. And so then from there, I, you know, we, we listed out in order of nutrient density, what greens were the highest. And then I incorporated them into different dishes. Um, some of the other things on our list, obviously we talked about seafood as being a source of iodine. Um, but obviously there's some concerns about getting clean seafood and, and varying it up in your diet with other sources of iodine. Um, legumes and grains um, we've talked about a little bit but absolutely I mean those are incorporated as well um, not only for the fiber that can help bind out some of the toxins that may we may be sensitive to but also in nourishing gut health by providing these starches that that feed the 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 colon cells the gut bacteria to regenerate those colon cells so um, basically it was not hard for me to put together recipes because this is the way I was already cooking. It was kind of validating to see all this in one place, but the recipes in and of themselves are just whole food based recipes. There's no white flour. There's no white sugar in them. Um, they're focused on nutrient dense whole foods. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, nuts and seeds as the foundation with some, fish and some other animal proteins incorporated in. But when you see a recipe for an animal protein, like I have a pork tenderloin um, that's been marinated with Dijon mustard and, you know, some other things that are going to help improve the digestibility of it. Um, I have a hemp seed chimichurri that I would recommend 
putting on a, a meat to up the ante on the antioxidant intake that's going to come in with that, that animal protein. So we try to explain it in a way of how to pair the foods in, in the most nutrient dense way possible to really eat the, the most variety and get the most antioxidants in. Well, I love that. And share with us how you suggest to prepare the, the grains that you're using and the, the legumes that you're using. Well, so for in the, so we've got the book broken down into three main parts. So as we've been speaking about the educational component, which Jill wrote, and then I wrote part two, which is kind of setting up your kitchen and your pantry with good staple items. And if people have questions about certain new, certain ingredients, I've explained, you know, what um, things like ghee, things that they might not be familiar with are. Um, and then there's a section on grains, nuts and seeds and beans that talks about if you toast them and how to toast them or if you want to soak them. I mean, I'll be honest, I don't always take the I don't feel like I have trouble digesting grains or beans, but I've been eating them pretty consistently for a long time. I'm kind of thinking about people who have been eating the standard American diet who whose guts might be more sensitive or more ravaged from, you know, not having the right um, the enough enzymes on board to help break down some of these foods. So they may want to take some of these extra steps where they would soak the grains overnight to help them not only cook up faster, which is kind of a, a practical thing, um, but then also might just help them break it down a little easier. Um, so there is some information in the book on, on suggesting, you know, maybe soaking your grains overnight. I really like to toast nuts and seeds and whole grains just to bring out flavor. And I think that that also improves their digestibility. And as we're moving into the cooler months, you know, adds an element of warmth and heat to the grain. So just kind of seasonally, it just makes sense to me. And um, so there's some of that information that people can kind of apply to their own needs. So give me an example of how you would toast your, your, your grains and your seeds. So there's a recipe um, for it's uh, chai. It's basically like a, a steel cut oatmeal with chai spices and then caramelized apples. And so I would take ghee and take those oats, um, those steel cut oats, and just toast them in a little bit of ghee before adding the cooking liquid and then going from there. Um, did you say toasting nuts and seeds? So yeah. to toast nuts, to toast seeds, they're small, sesame seeds, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds. You can do those in a dry skillet over low to medium heat on the stove in less than five minutes. And it adds a lot of flavor. It just um, really like creates a nice texture. Mm. For, for nuts that are more, that are larger in size, that are more irregular shaped, like walnuts or pecans, cashews, you're going to want to put those on a cookie sheet and put those in the oven for about, oh, depending on what temperature you put them in at. I, I like to put them in around 300 to 350 degrees, um, anywhere from six to 10 minutes. But the important thing is to make sure you set the timer so that you don't burn them, because as we all know, they're a very expensive ingredient um, in some instances. Um, we don't want to burn them and create, you know, a lot of toxic um, byproducts in the process. And how can you, yeah, how can you know for sure that you're not, you know, overcooking the oils? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I always just go with taste and smell. You know, as soon as it starts to taste kind of acrid or just bitter in flavor or even smell that way, kind of more pungent, um, then, then you've maybe gone too far. Um, 
same with cooking oils. You don't want to overheat a cooking oil on a pan to the point where you see it smoking. You want to keep it kind of uh, slow and low on a lot of cooking oils. Um, but yeah, just using your senses to really try to detect it. And I always try to stay on the, on the lower end just to keep it from, you know, just enough to get that flavor and that crunch that I'm looking for, but without overdoing it to where it's like black or brown. I think it's really brilliant to have that in there about, you know, soaking and preparing your, your grains in the booms because, you know, what I found, God, when I started back in 1984, when I first went into practice, I never heard of anybody not being able to digest grains, you know, and now it's like such a common thing. So we really have seen a digestive strength that's gotten weaker and weaker and weaker. And a lot of people need, you know, as they, when they get their digestion back on, you know, on track, they need that support of making, you know, grains easier to digest and legumes easier to digest. Otherwise they won't eat them and never get that fiber, which is so critically important for the microbiome and for the gut immunity. Um, so tell me a little bit about, you know, the book is set up where you have the, the you know, you have vegan recipes and you have paleo recipes and, uh, autoimmune recipes. Those are your three. So tell, tell me, and then also there's the elimination and provocation recipe. So kind of explain how it's set up for folks when they sure. read the book, they know how to do it. Yeah. The book is actually broken down into kind of, um, chapters like beverages, breakfasts, um, appetizers and snacks, condiments and sauces and seasonings, um, main dishes, salads, soups, and desserts. And for each recipe, if it happened to be vegan or have a, a, the ability to be adapted to be vegan, we put a little V at the bottom of the recipe in an icon. So every recipe has icons at the bottom to tell you, well, this can be vegan or it is vegan. This can be paleo or it is paleo. This can be AIP, um, autoimmune protocol or elimination diet friendly. And then we included notes on how you would make those adaptations. So, um, the adaptations are in the bottom of the recipe, like, okay, to make this vegan, instead of using chicken, maybe put chickpeas in, um, that sort of thing. So we're really trying to meet people where they're at and, um, in terms of how they want to approach their therapeutic diet towards um, alleviating thyroid issues. So what's the difference between the, 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 um, the paleo protocol and the, the autoimmune protocol? So paleo, paleo basically um, is free of grains, beans, dairy, um, processed sugars, and high, highly processed oils. And it focuses on um, animal proteins like grass-fed and pasture-raised meats and eggs. Um, as well as um, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, and healthier oils like ghee and olive oil, um, more of like the traditional fats and oils. Um, autoimmune protocol is stricter in that it eliminates um, beans. Well, paleo eliminates beans, but um, in addition, it's in addition, it's similar to paleo, but it takes it one step further in getting rid of. Um, Nightshades, which can be some people can be sensitive to if they have joint issues. Um, it gets rid of uh, seeds that contain uh, nightshades, and, and it doesn't allow other types of seeds in, in that particular approach either. So, I mean, I think the jury's still out as to whether or not. I know that some people go on these diets, and like you were saying earlier, paleo is a clean diet. And it's like, well, what what's going on here? Is it because they took out the white flour and the white sugar and the processed oils that they're feeling better? Or is it because they're eating only, you know, these foods? 
um, we, like I said, you know, we tend to take it, we don't like to be so limiting in our approach. And we think most people can do grains and beans and um, other ingredients. We just want to help support people in their process of figuring out maybe doing an elimination diet and taking some of these foods out and then introducing them back in and seeing if they get better in the process and working on improving their digestive strength. So where are the recipes that have the, the gooms and the grains that you're using? They're throughout, they're throughout the book. But they're not, they're, throughout. they're not, they're not the paleo. They're not the autoimmune, right? They're what section? Correct. They, what well, every section of the book contains um, recipes that would have a grain or a bean in it. And at the bottom of the recipe, if it doesn't say paleo or if it doesn't have the P or the AIP icon at the bottom of the recipe, then it's, it's going to be grain based or bean based and not modifiable to, you know, adapt in a way that would be appropriate for either of those approaches. I see. So yeah, yeah they're through, they're throughout. You're throughout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It would have been great to have like a, a G for grains on there. So people know where to find those. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, because it looks like when you go through it, it looks like, okay, this is when you read what the AII and the, and the paleo is, you just look, okay, there's just no grains here, but then there are grains in the recipe. So they sort of sneak up on you. So it's good that it's good to, uh, to let people know that, that they're there and they're easy to digest grains. So they're great grains for reintroducing grains back into your diet, reintroducing those fibers back into the diet. Of course, we know fiber is a little hard to digest, can cause some gas and bloating, but those are what the bugs feed on. So it's really important that we know how to, how to digest that. Um, great. Now talk to me a little bit about, as we wrap up here, the elimination and the provocation program, which is a way of, to figure out, right, what food is really the culprit, right? So, mm -hmm. so can you guys describe that for me? Yeah. Yes. So the elimination diet, we have a chapter in the book and the educational piece um, of the book where basically guiding people through some simple instructions on doing an elimination provocation diet. This is where you would take out potentially inflammatory foods that may be causing triggers for people. Maybe they're um, the underlying cause for eczema or other types of food allergy symptoms. Um, so we guide people on some of these food, take, how to take these foods out. And some of these potential triggers would be, you know, we've talked about gluten. Um, dairy is another potential trigger. Um, citrus can be a trigger. So it's a matter of eggs. So it's, it's pretty much cleaning out your diet and getting really simple for a period of uh, about four weeks. And then slowly reintroducing those foods one at a time. So if you wanted to see if you're sensitive to dairy, then after 30 days, you could reintroduce the dairy in and see if over that 30 day, period, did you, did your symptoms improve? Do you feel better? And, you know, did your eczema clear up? Um, and then after 30 days, reintroduce it back in and see if you have a flare in any of your symptoms that you might thought, maybe thought could be associated with that potential trigger. And so that's why the, the recipes in and of themselves, some of them, several of them say EP at the bottom for elimination provocation friendly, which would indicate that those recipes are free of some of those potential triggers. Nice. And do you find that when people go on that and they, they go on they eat your diet and go on your plan, that people are able to somehow down the road reintroduce those foods? Yeah, I think so. And, and especially if they're doing it in combination with some other gut healing protocols like, uh, you know, taking certain supplements like glutamine and things to help regenerate and nourish um, 
the gut tissue. And I'll let I'll let Jill add on because I know she's probably got some things to add on too about elimination diet. So I'm super passionate about the elimination diet and um, what you see in the book is the same protocol that I use with my clients and it's an amalgamation of what I've pulled from several doctors in the functional medicine community over time. And what I mean by that is you'll see a lot of elimination diets that just say remove gluten, dairy, eggs, and soy. And that's fine. That might get somebody where they need to be, but my version is a little more inclusive because I feel like if people are going to take the time do an elimination provocation diet. Like, let's take out what I see as all of the big potential antigens. Knowing that, I mean, you know, the fear response that people get is, well, oh my gosh, what am I going to eat? There's a much longer list of foods that you can eat. Many of the recipes in our cookbook are elimination provocation diet friendly, as Lisa talked about. And I would just say that. I've worked with a lot of clients who've done paleo and AIP, and I, I call them refugees. They they come, they end up coming to me or someone like me, not just me, but uh, and they say, "Well, I did paleo or I did AIP, and I, I felt better for a period of time, and then I kind of crashed, or my antibodies actually went up, or I actually gained weight. I don't feel better." And when I ask them, "Have you ever done?" a targeted, systematic, sequenced elimination provocation diet along with some of these supplements that we know help to turn over those epithelial cells in the lining of the gut wall, yeah. most people say no. Or I just went on this diet and I didn't know how long to be on it. And I find that oftentimes people are overdosing on glutamine, which is a problem. Um, it's another one of those things where they read about the gut healing properties of glutamine and then they take a whole bunch of it and then it converts to glutamate in the brain and they feel like they want to crawl out of their skin. Like, it's there, there needs to be a, a systematic sequenced approach in gut healing. And I think the elimination provocation diet is, is one of the most important things, if not the most important thing. And I always tell people, this is not a forever diet. And this is just to find out what your body may be reacting to. And you'll see that grains and legumes are not on the do not eat list for that, you know, short period of time before people start um, provoking or, you know, entering into their provocation phase. And that has raised a lot of eyebrows. Um, with my clients, they say, Oh, well, I see that your elimination provocation diet does not exclude grains and legumes. And I say, that's right. It doesn't. This, these are the foods I want you to focus on with the understanding that you can eat these foods again later once the lining of the gut has healed. And then that's another aha for people where they say, oh, you know, one of the reasons I was resisting doing this is because I love cheese. and I don't want to be dairy free. And I say, well, could you do it? Would you be willing to do it for a period of time knowing that if it is a trigger for you, you can heal the gut, you know, to, to create tolerance in your body for that casein or that lactose. This doesn't mean you can never eat dairy again. And a lot of people say, oh, okay, well, yeah, I would be willing to try this. I love it. I think that, you know, I think that's an important, like you said, such an important part of the book. And, you know, because you do stumble across what are sometimes called core level allergies where people just really are 
allergic to a certain substance and they just can't eat those things and that's a core allergy. So when you bump into that, then that maybe comes out of the diet. But in many cases, and in most cases, you can reset function, heal the intestinal lining, support lymphatic flow, turn digestive strength back on, and next thing you know, they can reintroduce these foods and safely and they know exactly that that, that, that can happen and they can see the benefits and that, that they start eating a wider berth of foods again. And of course, um, I love that, that you made the recipes and you tied them to seasons and the seasonality. Um, I'm a big fan of that as well. As you know, we publish a free grocery list and recipe list every month for free for folks so they can get the right foods, the right bugs out of the soil in their gut. You know, <clears throat> was it this last, uh, last week, the three scientists won the Nobel Prize for circadian medicine, and it's all about how we as a culture have lost those rhythms, digestive clocks turn on and turn off, and we're oftentimes eating when the clock is off, and, and uh, you do that for a long enough period of time with foods that are very difficult to digest, including highly processed foods. You know, it's really no wonder that this has happened to us, and I think that you guys make a great case for demanding whole foods. I don't mean the store, I mean the actual food. And, uh, and brilliantly put together recipes that take the, the nutrients that your thyroid needs and put them into recipes that make, you know, really good sense. And I love the fact that you, that you sort of, you know, deviated away from something super restrictive like a paleo diet, which isn't, you know, if you talk to a pale, I, this is another question that, that I wonder. And I, and I, when I talk to pale, you know, when I talk to um, anthropologists and about what the Paleolithic people actually ate, you know, like in Daniel Lieberman's book, The Story of the Human Body, a Harvard researcher, 45% of them were starches and grains, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like, I don't understand how they can say the Paleolithic people didn't eat grain or legumes when there's so much science to suggest that they did. Can you comment on that? Or maybe you don't know much about that. So I know you didn't write a paleo book, so. Well, we quote you in the book as saying pretty much what you just said. Yeah. In, in the, so there's a sub-chapter. So there's the, the longest chapter is called Why This Is Not Another Paleo or AIP Cookbook. And then there's two sub-chapters. One's called In Defense of Grains and one's called In Defense of Legumes. And we quote you in that grain section with a, with a footnote basically saying, you know, we've been told that our ancestors didn't eat these foods, but in fact, we have some evidence that they did. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I just think that what, and, the, and the, the reason why I think it's important is because people go on, like you said, those restrictive diets, and then they can't stay on them. And then when they go off of them, they go crazy. And that's not where you want them to be. So it has to be balanced, seasonally balanced, nutritionally balanced, you know, so we give, you know, the nutritional cycle is an annual cycle in nature. So we start to try to lay out a, a diet that's not going to leave them craving. And then the next best-selling diet gives them permission to eat what the previous diet left them craving. So the pendulum just swings from one extreme all the way to another. And we keep, and, and in the middle is all the people with inflammation and autoimmunity who are just bouncing off the pinball machine trying to figure out what the heck to eat, which is so... Uh, so amazing. Anyway, um, last words, comments, please. You know, uh, uh, this has been really wonderful. I think I think my, my listeners are going to love this. Um, ways people can get a hold of you. Where can they get the book? Um, 
Yeah. How can they do that? So our website is thyroidcookbook.com, and this is what the book looks like. <laughs> um, and we'll post and that on this. We'll post that on the site so they can see it, so they'll get a good look at right. it. So thyroidcookbook.com is the best way to reach us. Um, if you have questions, there's a, you can contact us on that website. Uh, learn more about the book. Um, there's a lot of additional resources and, and education we provide through that website as well. And there's a free sample book for people who want to try it before they buy. So it's a free download on the thyroidcookbook.com website. Um, it's a little mini book. It's a, it's a very shortened version of the soft cover book that people can download for free and see it. I love that. I love that. And I highly, anybody who has a thyroid condition, I highly recommend reading this book because there's nothing better to know exactly what foods to eat to support your thyroid. I think that's critically important. Um, I've written a ton of articles about thyroid. I have a whole thyroid health section. You can read about that. That in conjunction with the lymphatic section and the digestive section, that give you a pretty good road to hoe to help bring the thyroid and digestion back into balance. So uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Lisa. It's been great. And hopefully we'll send a lot of folks your way and get that book. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Hi, did you like this video? Do you like our content here at Life Spa? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash John DeYard right here and get this valuable content every week in your inbox. This recording is brought to you by LifeSpa, where ancient Ayurvedic wisdom meets modern science. Get access to free health video newsletters by Dr. John at LifeSpa.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.